Hello, it's Friday 4th of February. I'm Hannah Pearson. Welcome to part one of our new series called Two Years of Travel Disruption, as Gary Bowerman and I assess the short and medium-term impacts of COVID-19 across the region. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So it's almost two years since Southeast Asian nations began shutting their borders as COVID-19, or the first variant as it was back then, began to spread across our region and then beyond. So we're going to put together a series of shows with the help of experts from across Southeast Asia to assess the changes that are already occurring in the travel industry, those that could happen in the coming months, and those perhaps should but won't happen at all. So Hannah, to kick off, we've put together a 15-point list of unavoidable changes that we've noticed over recent months and, well, the whole of the past two years. Should we, should we dive straight in? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so you, we can't start really talking about tourism without looking at the numbers, which are pretty horrific, aren't they? I think there's no, uh, no sugarcoating it. So, you know, from 2019, has saw 143.5 million visitors across 10 ASEAN countries. That dropped drastically to just 26.1 million in 2020. Other numbers, some headline numbers. So Singapore Changi Airport, 68.3 million passengers in 2019, 11.8 million in 2020, 3.053 million in 2021. So from 68.3 to to barely 3 million. It's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? What other stats have you got for us, Gary? Yeah, so we chose Singapore because it was the, the region's busiest airport before uh, COVID-19. It was the 18th busiest airport in the world in 2019. And the most visited country in our region was Thailand, which attracted 39.8 million visitors in 2019. In 2020, that slumped right down to 6.7 million. Uh, most of those obviously came in the first three months before the borders closed. But last year, I mean, it's, it's just astonishing. In the, the period between July and November 2021, when Thailand operated these various reopening schemes, there were just 157,000 visitors, 157,000 visitors, which again is, is pretty astonishing. And if we look across the region, we look at the airline capacity, which as we know, greases the wheels of the travel and travel and tourism industries throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, if we look at the week beginning 24th of January, so last week really essentially, uh, across the region, total airline capacity was operating at minus 48.9% compared to the week of 21 January 2019. So about half of the capacity has completely fallen off of the cliff. Now, there is some good news, I think, is that's that we've seen in recent weeks, domestic travel, uh, airline travel has started to grow again in the region. But it's that international travel that is, is causing this, this huge shortfall against the, the pre-COVID-19 period. Again, some of the positive news is that Indonesia is back in the global top six for airline connectivity. Again, that's based on its domestic scenario. And Vietnam is back up to 16th. And both of those actually dropped out of the world's top 20 uh, points last year. So you know, there is some degree of growth coming back, but uh, it's, it's that international capacity which is, which is missing. Yeah, exactly. And you know, like you said, that we're seeing domestic creep up there, but it, it is all about the international market, isn't it? That's what everybody is is waiting for. So let's hope that this change is not a permanent one. Our second uh, big change is, is really just kind of looking at the context of, of how COVID-19 and, and the pandemic has really played out 
you know, in, in recent years. So, of course, when it first hit, there was this big comparison uh, with SARS, which, of course, hit Asia very badly. We saw all of these travel restrictions, lockdowns, uh, you know, on, on borders again. But when when we look at it now, it's, it's not quite the same comparison anymore, is it, Gary? No, because it was very short-lived. You know, it did have an impact, not not the same global impact, but it was very short-lived. And yeah, it quickly became apparent, didn't it, that comparing COVID-19, particularly when the WHO designated COVID-19 as a global pandemic, you know, we realized that we were going to be in for a much longer haul. Yeah, again, you, you mentioned the context there. Sometimes the impact got compared to the global financial crisis. You know, we heard this word unprecedented that got used quite a lot in the early months of the pandemic. But you know, that's two years ago now, and we've, we've had this great travel shutdown in our region, in Southeast Asia and across Asia Pacific. For, we're moving into a third year now. And so the impacts that we're going to talk about today, Hannah, are inevitable simply because of the, the longevity and just this enduring nature that governments are, are still reticent to actually fully reopen their borders. Yeah, absolutely. So shall we move on to number three then? This really, you know, if you're, you're in the tourism industry you have been touched by this in some way. So, of course, we have seen massive job losses, closure of businesses throughout the region, throughout the world, and a lasting damage to travel infrastructure. And like I said, if, you, if you're a tourism professional, I am sure you know at least one person who was laid off, had to reduce hours because of the pandemic, has had to pivot their tourism business, has seen even perhaps if travel is picking up, are people wanting to come back into the travel industry? And Gary and I, we've, we've talked about this before, haven't we? When you see such damage, so many businesses closing, so many jobs being lost, it's really that huge destruction of this travel infrastructure that has been built over decades. And how do you go from here? Yeah, I think it's a good point. Built over decades, but certainly accelerated in growth during the last decade. You know, travel and tourism across our region really, really expanded. That brought a lot of new businesses, startups across all different various segments of travel and tourism. And of course, that created a lot more jobs. We've seen lots of people, as you said, business closures, people have moved into other industries. Will they come back? We don't know. I, I do think that one of the things we will see is that the travel infrastructure will start to regenerate. It's definitely going to be slimmed down. It's definitely going to be leaner than it was before. And we will see new businesses and new uh, aspects of tourism being invested in. But it's that big job loss, you know, it's the amount of uh, qualified people and people who know and understand hospitality, they understand travel and tourism that are lost. And some of those may be forever. And that's going to be, uh, you know, a, a big pit to climb out of. Uh, hopefully it can happen. The travel industry is full of optimism. That's one of the things that's always been apparent about people who work in the industry. There is a love for, for what travel and tourism actually brings aside from the commercial elements. But yeah, it's a personnel issue. And, you know, that will take a long time to do. To, to cover over. On to number four then. And th this is kind of related to one of your wishes, I think, Gary, wasn't it? From uh, 22 wishes for 2022. As uh, we have seen this intensified state control over travel and tourism. And I think linked with that, we have also seen the lack of understanding that the state also has over the travel and tourism industry, haven't we? Yeah, you're right. That's something we did discuss in our 22 for 2022 series, where we looked at uh, some of the wishes we would like to see for travel and tourism over the coming months. And one of those was we would we would like to see a loosening of state control, because uh, as well as controlling borders, you know, governments have really actually galvanized uh, the supply mechanisms, even some of the you know the way that travel and tourism actually works. Uh, and they at the moment don't seem to be 
too keen to let some of those controls go, which is very, very different to what happens in Europe. Governments tend to control their borders. And then once the the borders are open, it's basically down to the private sector to manage hospitality, to manage travel, to manage tourism. But that's not the case here. And at the moment, you would say for the near future, you probably will have to somehow navigate around the fact the state is going to be very heavily involved in in whatever happens going forward. Absolutely. And linked to that, uh, you know, if we're talking about border control, is the change that vaccines are the new visas. And Gary, you wrote that. I love, I love that that slogan. Vaccines are the new visas. It's true, isn't it? That that is now the driving force, both within the country for for reopening it. You know, the, the level of vaccination the country has reached, but also who are you going to let into the country? And it it is almost a a second consideration, isn't it, about visas? Whereas before, particularly in Southeast Asia, I think the visas were the very important thing. Some countries had started to expand their visa waivers or visa-free on arrivals, schemes like Vietnam, like Indonesia had in recent years. But now it's all about vaccinations. If you're not vaccinated, you can't come in, essentially, isn't it? That That is the gatekeeper now. Yeah, the gatekeeper is right. And it's an interesting one, because as you said, you're absolutely right there. You know, these vaccines are the new visas for international travel, also for domestic travel as well. But, you know, in some, in, in many countries as well, to actually live your ordinary life, you, you have to show your vaccinated status to get into places like offices or, or cafes or, or hotels or things like that. So, you know, vaccines are the dominant factor. Also, as you said, you know, the, the region had started to move away from visas, particularly for like the, the big markets. So as you said, some countries were waiving the visas for Chinese tourists or Indian tourists, you know, to, just to make it much, much easier for people to travel. Uh, but we've moved away from that. The vaccine issue is quite an interesting one, because where does it go from here? You know, in some countries, uh, Malaysia is one of those, I think, from the end of February, that you won't be considered as fully vaccinated unless you've had three jabs. Going forward, how do we move out of that scenario? Will we have to have fourth jabs? Will we have to have fifth jabs? Will that actually mean that you can only travel if you've had those those vaccinations? I don't know. I'm not sure whether this one will actually become less important over time. I guess that depends on, on new variants and, and new vaccines. You know, Singapore has just uh, approved uh, an antiviral pill. Um, so d- does that mean that vaccines become less important that we actually be able to treat COVID-19 cases, particularly the more serious ones, uh, with drugs. I don't know the answer to that, Hannah, but you're absolutely right. Right now, to travel, you have to be vaccinated. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's going to get a whole lot more complicated. I remember when we started to talk about vaccines back in, in the end of 2020, it seemed like they would be the the panacea for everything. Right? It seemed like as soon as we got the vaccines, boom, borders would reopen and life would be simple. But I think we quickly discovered that that is not the case and uh, so much more complicated than that. So moving on to number six, Hannah, and this is one of yours. This is something we were talking about before the pandemic, but certainly it's accelerated in importance. And that's the growth of quality over mass tourism talk from governments and only paying lip service really to sustainability. Where do we go from here? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, so obviously I think sustainability has been, well, it's definitely been on the tourism industry's agenda for many years. And I think the awareness of that has started to pick up and governments are also aware that they need to be doing something about it even just from a I suppose uh, cynically even from a marketing point of view because you've now got more responsible travelers and you need to demonstrate that your country is also pursuing responsible sustainable travel so hand in hand with that has now come this 
drive from governments across the region. You know, we've seen it from Malaysia, from Indonesia, from Thailand. This talk about quality tourists. Quality tourists normally is just a code for tourists with money (laughs) over mass tourists. We were were talking on a, a couple of podcasts ago about how the Indonesian, one of the Indonesian ministers was talking about how backpackers wouldn't be welcome and and then kind of walk that back. Um, So this is really a hot topic and it is good that it is seeing the light and I think that that is a positive change that COVID-19 has made. But is it all just lip service like we were saying, Gary? Are we going to see this now because it's convenient to talk about quality tourists now because they can see, oh, we're not going to get many tourists to come visit the country. So the ones we do get, we should make sure that they spend more so that that can kind of even out. Um, but when borders do really fully open and people do start traveling again, are they just going to go for the mass tourism instead? Or do they want that mass amount of of dollars? So that, that's the question, Mark, I think. Where, where is the change going to go from there? Yeah, of course they do. It's posturing. I mean, I, the, 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 the thing that I don't really understand and never actually gets explained is how you actually quantifiably link quality tourism to sustainability. It doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense. When they're talking about quality tourists, generally you're tending to look at investment-based tourists. So you're basically looking at big resorts, big theme parks, places where people are going to spend in, in concentrated amounts of time. But those places aren't sustainable by any means. You know, the construction, the, the maintenance, the development of those projects is, is far from sustainable. So I don't even think it's lip service. I, I think it's actually false, false pretense. And the mass tourism debate has simply just been walked over because there is no mass tourism right now, as you said, Hannah. But as soon as the airline gates reopen, we're seeing this in Thailand, the, the variety of tourists that are going back to Thailand, it, it, you know, it's back across the spectrum again. You do have resort travelers, you do have backpackers, you do have business travelers. You know, have that whole spectrum that makes travel and tourism the vibrant and dynamic industry that it is. This talk about having quality or high yield or high spending tourists, I think you alluded to this a few moments ago. It's basically said by politicians who just don't understand the industry at all. Agreed. So we move on to number seven, and this is another drive from the government and, and national tourism boards, which is this focus that we have seen on domestic tourism. And of course, this has been an essential focus. This is it's a change that has had to happen for tourism businesses to be able to survive. And it's brought positive changes. So we have seen airlines implement more routes between you know secondary tertiary cities that previously weren't linked you know, within the same country. So that that is great. I think there are all sorts of opportunities there. But as I've said before, my worry is that this focus on domestic tourism is just very short term. It is until the the stars of the show, the international tourists can show up. What's your take? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it really is up in the air. We simply don't know the answer. And we'll come back to this point slightly in our very, very final point of today's show. But I do think you're right in terms of domestic tourism has almost become just an essential focus economically for, for, for countries. Um, it's given people chances to go and explore their, their own countries in new ways, find new destinations, find new routes, uh, find new ways to enjoy travel. That's great. And, you know, I think that will hold over, particularly in the larger countries where there's much more to do, there's much more to see. You know, getting that flavor of what you can actually find uh, that you didn't know before in your own country is great. And I think some of that will definitely pertain into the future. But you're right. You know, what, what actually happens when you can fly internationally again? I guess we'll just have to wait and see. It's one of the unknowns. I mean, I, I think we're pretty sure international travel will come back to some degree. But, you know, the scale, the pace of that recovery is at the moment pretty unknown and, and particularly this opportunity now to, to find out more about your own backyard 
maybe that is something that people will still want to do as we move into whatever this new era delivers for us. Let's hope. So on to number eight and that change in just being able to buy a ticket and fly the next day, fly the same day even. That is a big change, isn't it? And that really doesn't seem to be on the horizon anytime soon. We've got all the paperwork, the apps you need to download, the tests you need to take. It is far from a simple transaction anymore, isn't it, travel? Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, that's one of the biggest changes that we'll see moving into this new era is, you know, that 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 flexibility, that ability, as you said, to, to buy a ticket and fly the same day, the same evening, the next day. The freedom that that gave you as well to travel when you needed to travel, if you had to travel intercontinentally for family reasons, something you literally could get there within 24 hours from Southeast Asia back to Europe or to, to the US. It's much more difficult now. I have a feeling that this actually will just sort itself out as we go forward. If travel does start to return in reasonably growing volumes, airports will find that it's simply impossible to do the, the, the testing that they're required to do. Some of the paperwork, some of the application processes will just become too difficult. And you're, it's basically going to create a huge barrier to travel when governments have actually said that they want to bring travel back. So I think that at the moment, it, it, it's all there simply because there's such a low volume of travel. But if volumes do come back, I think that they will actually start to move the market. I mean, that's the hope. Uh, governments may have slightly different views on that. But, you know, I think that's the hope that it simply would become unsustainable, it would just become too difficult. You just, you just have airports that are completely congested for long, long periods of time. Backlogs of paperwork at government offices and that kind of thing, which nobody wants. It doesn't really uh, achieve anything. Um, so let's hope. If travel does come roaring back, that will actually be something that solves itself. Yeah, like you said, that's really going to be a negotiation between the private sector and the, and the public sector on just expanding that capacity again. And like you say, it, it isn't sustainable, it isn't feasible to have testing on thousands, hundreds of thousands of passengers, you know, arriving on a weekly basis. Um, so what do you do? And eventually, yeah, it has to go away. So linked to that is um, travel insurance and what will happen with that. So right now, a lot of countries, as one of their entry requirements, have, you know, you need to have a minimum amount of travel insurance that is covering you against COVID-19. But travel insurers are going to have to really rethink their policies and what they cover and what they don't cover. We're going to see so many more cancellations, so many more modifications people getting sick, how can they design policies that cover that, that are not prohibitively expensive as well? Um, because I think now everybody is very aware that they do need to have some kind of travel insurance as well. They want that reassurance that somebody is going to take care of them when they travel. But if the premiums are too expensive, then that again is going to be another uh, kind of blocker for, for travel researching. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually included this one, a slight personal interest. I'm actually doing some research into this at the moment. This is kind of, I think, where it shows how the hemispheres have diverged quite considerably during COVID-19. I was speaking to some insurers recently in Europe, and you know, the understanding of how travelers into Asia, whether they're coming from Europe or North America, the situations are very, very different traveling here right now than they are during the summer in Europe, for example. For a good example, as you, you, you've quoted this one before, Hannah, it was that $3,000 deposit fee in Cambodia. Now that got rescinded, but there was this uh, deposit as well as you would need 50,000 
uh, US dollars of medical insurance just to enter Cambodia. And that, that was for various reasons, including if you needed uh, treatment for COVID-19 at a medical facility. And I think also the one we've often quoted is for your funeral cross if you actually died in the country. But these are real concerns. You know, if, Thailand is one of those countries where if you're actually flying into the country and the person directly to the left or to the right of you on a plane tests positive upon arrival, you know, you get quarantined. So there are going to be costs, medical costs, and this isn't going to go away anytime soon. But travel insurance providers are, I think, just really caught in the crosshairs here at the moment in terms of actually being able to, to underwrite these changing insurance policies. And whether these will, as we've said, you know, over time, will the market actually sort out so that some of these prohibitive costs are not needed? In fact, it could get worse if there is another variant later in the year and more people traveling actually become sick. So there's the cost also, not just of having the medical treatment while you're in the country, but if your borders get closed and you can't get home again, you know, will that be covered by insurance? I think there are still huge amounts of unknowns here. And that is going to be, I think, encouraging Asian travelers to take a higher premium level going forward in future. Um, but whether those high, higher premiums actually cover you for what you really need at the moment seems to be a great unknown. Yeah, exactly. Um, so question mark, what's, what's going to happen with insurance? Number 10, rise of the super apps. So of course, you know, during this period, we have seen Air Asia, well, capital A now, right? Air Asia Group has renamed itself capital A, really positioning themselves as a lifestyle business rather than just an airline. So the airline is just one one piece of this big machinery that they have. And, you know, there's going to be fierce competition in Southeast Asia with all of these super apps and everything that they can do from travel to ride hailing to food delivery to insurance, <laughs> probably. That's, that's, a, that's a big change in how consumers are going to be looking for travel as well, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Insurance and financial services are definitely going to be part of the super apps. I mean, you mentioned AirAsia, now capital A, which is a real prominent leader in this Southeast Asian super app. So too is Grab. You know, Grab had its IPO last year, raised huge amounts of money. It's got a lot of money to spend now on acquisitions. It started by buying um, a supermarket chain here in Malaysia, but it, but it won't finish there. It will certainly be buying up other companies. You're looking in uh, Indonesia, Traveloka, uh, which is an online travel agency, that's looking to IPO. So that would have, again, <clears throat> huge amounts of money. It's just launched its own ride-hailing company. So you know these expanding companies are going to be encompassing pretty much every aspect of travel and lifestyle going forward. So we're going to see a huge super corporatization of access to payment for and delivery of travel services. And this really, really mirrors what happened in China before the pandemic. Several, several years ago, you started to see this growth of super apps. Tony Fernandez certainly saw this coming, perhaps ahead of everybody else in his own airline industry, but certainly not in, in the travel industry, Traveloka, Grab. Now, these companies have seen that it's not just about booking travel anymore. It's about everything. It's, as you said, Hannah, it's it's food deliveries, it's supermarkets, it's ride hailing, it's financial services. It's basically having everything that people need for their daily lifestyles in one place, easy to access. Uh, and you partner with all different brands to make that happen. We'll see more consolidation, but I think we'll also see the rise of other super apps as well when Southeast Asian companies do their IPOs and they get more funds to, to start buying up other companies. Uh, where this goes longer term is hard to know and how that will actually affect travel booking. You know, the, the OTAs themselves will have to become super apps. They can't just sell travel services. So, yeah, big change in this in this arena, I think. 
Yeah, exactly. And even the move from e-commerce players, people like Lazada and Shopee, uh, who are, again, really big platforms in Southeast Asia, who are also trying to sell travel verticals as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's competition from every angle there. I mean, that, that those two are good examples because, they, you know, they're, they're tending to use uh, other OTAs on, on their platforms at the moment. But, you know, would Shopee or Lazada actually build their own travel distribution system? It's, it's highly possible if they have the money to do that. Yeah, exactly. If they see the opportunity there, travel coming back up again, then then why not? And that will really um, set the cat among the pigeons, as they say. That, that will really stir up things. So number 11 then, and that's looking at business travel. And of course, business travel as we know it has completely changed, hasn't it? Um, so from hopping on uh, a plane and, you know, this this is the last trip I did. Literally, I hopped on a plane for a business meeting in Singapore and came back on a day trip. That's not going to happen anymore. Right now, everything is Zoom. I think everybody has Zoomed out. But businesses have also seen that cost saving, haven't they? They, they have seen... They don't have to send people out there. Right now, do you even want to take that liability for sending your employee to another country and having to cover their quarantine or their sickness costs and everything else? Kind of easier, safer to keep them within that country. And I think that that has, has really shaken up perceptions of meetings that were previously really seen as, as really essential to have and to travel overseas for them. Perhaps not anymore. I mean, of course, I think it, business travel is going to stay there. People do need to meet people at the end of the day, but perhaps not at those same levels that they were before. What do you think, Gary? Yeah, totally agree. I think this also really uh, aligns very, very closely with our point nine about travel insurance and, and company travel insurance premiums will probably be much, much higher than they were before traveling, particularly to certain countries um, where borders could change, where outbreaks get treated in different ways than they would uh, say in Europe or North America. So that would have an issue. I, I think what will happen with business travel, I do think some elements of it will come back, but I think it'll be much more segmented than ever. So you're right, you know, some of the seminars, some of the conference um, side of things, you know, it, it can be avoided now. You don't need to travel for a lot of that. Deal making will still be need to be done face to face. Conventions and exhibitions, they'll still need to happen. I think they will come back quite quickly. I was thinking about this, Hannah, you know, the, the ITB Asia conference that we always used to go to down in Singapore once a year, gathered everybody together in the travel industry. And one of the reasons that we used to go to that was you make, meet a lot of connections, you go to a lot of different seminars, uh, you could meet travel suppliers, that kind of thing, all in one place. But one of the reasons we used to do that is there wasn't really any other opportunity throughout the year to do any of that. But Zoom and, and Google Meet and, and Microsoft Teams means that some of these actual events are happening throughout the year now. So there's kind of less of that need to go to that one catch-all show you know, later in the year. I don't know if that will change going forward, but certainly that's one of the big changes, I think, over the past two years. Is there's just so much travel content, so much travel discussion, and so much kind of travel um, and tourism forward planning that now gets done online. Does that really need to go back into a meeting room? Yeah, and that, that leads on nicely to our next point, all about hybrid mice events. And of course, this is this is what we are starting to see now that mice is picking up a little bit. We are seeing this this hybrid form of limited number of participants in a place itself and other people kind of dialing in. And, you know, I, I saw a photo, somebody had sent a photo of one of the setups at Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. And there were so many monitors and screens and it, it, I swear it, it looked like they were going to send a rocket to the moon. It looked like, <laughs> like 
like a mini NASA station and kind of set up there. It was so complicated. Clearly, hotels have invested in this. You know, we, we have seen over the last couple of years, lots of hotels, particularly in uh, those big business cities like Singapore, I think Kuala Lumpur is, is a number of them as well, have really invested heavily in creating these green rooms, creating these hybrid setups, training up their internal team to be able to handle complex technical hybrid events. But like you say, you know, some, some of these, for example, ITB Asia, they can happen virtually, but they do need that physical element as well. You're missing the, the randomness, right? The, the standing in line and getting chatting to somebody who stood next to you and you just so happen to have a mutual interest or a mutual friend and a connection happens that way. You know, it's missing spontaneity, I think. And, um, you know, they always say spontaneity sparks creativity as well. So I think hybrid mice events are going to be here, but it's going to be interesting how it plays out. I, I can't predict it, but uh, we, I think we will have somebody on the podcast very soon to talk specifically about mice and be super interesting to get their views. Yeah, I think this is another issue where East and West are going to diverge again. I, I think in, in the United States, in Europe, in-person events are going to come back. I really don't see the hybrid events being particularly successful in those markets. I think they will be in-person events. I also think they will come back in Asia as well. Um, so whether some companies and some hotels you see have over-invested in hybrid technologies, we'll have to wait and see. But I'm skeptical about those, I have to admit. On to 13 then. And this is really this shift. We have seen this shift in expectations for tourism stakeholders, particularly in their marketing, right? From going to just talk about this is my product um, and come set, come buy it to really being content creators. Uh, they're creating videos. They're doing Facebook lives. They're creating all sorts of collateral to promote destination, to promote their product. That's quite a mindset shift as well for these people, um, you know, to, to really go beyond this is what I've got to, to taking people by the hand, giving a more experiential kind of buying experience. Yeah, 100%. Born of an essential need, really. The only way to really engage online consumers over the past two years was to create stories, was to create uh, engaging content that was different to everybody else that told your story in, your, in, in its own unique way. We have moved towards almost saturation point with that. The short video formats are probably playing a really bigger role right now, the TikToks, that kind of thing, because you can try and get messaging across very, very quickly, particularly with online consumers, which we know, particularly amongst uh, younger demographics, they don't have a huge concentration span. They want things to be immediate. They want the messaging very, very quick, and they want it to be very in your face. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Content creation is going to enter a new round going forward, and that will really separate out as you said, tourism stakeholders who become content creators and, and who can do this the best and who can do this in a way that actually will meet changing consumer requirements. You know, we've all been very home-based over the last two years. We've all been in front of our computers. We may not be that way going forward quite as much. So how do we actually engage people on their phones when they're going back to work, doing their commutes, uh, whether they're stood waiting for the elevator, you know, not just at home in front of their computers. I think we're going to have to really look at how we diversify content creation for different times that people actually access it. But yeah, 100% agree with you that that's the way forward. Tourism stakeholders have now become their own media companies in many ways. Absolutely. 14. And I mean, this is a massive change, whether it will last, uh, we've yet to see, but we have seen the end of over tourism, haven't we? 
<laughs> that is there's not really a, a big topic anymore for, for tourism boards right now in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and where does this go? Over tourism has has gone off the radar simply because enough people aren't traveling. But you know, going forward in future, will you be able to get you know that clear shot you want at Angkor? Or, you know, will you be able to uh, get on a ferry to a Thai island where you're not crammed into a corner? I, I mean, I don't know the answer to this. You know, we read lots of travel sentiment surveys where people say they want to get away into nature, they want to avoid the crowds. But you know, what happens in in six to eight months? time after travel actually comes back will people fall back into previous modes of travel going to previous destinations pretty hard to say and i think this leads quite nicely into our final point 15th which is you know what are consumer perceptions right now what what are they going to think about when they're planning and booking an overseas travel again this is kind of an unknown after two years of where the market has been has been so slow yeah, exactly. I mean, we have seen so many uh, consumer surveys, particularly in January, especially about the Singaporean market. I think at least four, four or five different surveys from, from different players about what Singaporean outbound travelers are going to want um, when they do start traveling. The thing is, it's very different uh, for consumers to give their opinions uh, in these kind of market surveys and then to actually put down their money and potentially their health um, on, a, on an overseas trip. Um, it's, it's difficult to predict, I think, until, you know, we really start to see outbound travel moving. And from there, we can kind of see the trends. Are people going on shorter haul trips? Are they going for shorter durations or are they going for longer durations? Are they spending more money because they have all of this pent up travel or are they saving their money because they have had, you know, they've had salary cuts. They have had family members being made redundant. They prefer to save up their money in case something happens again to have that, that kind of nest egg. So many unknowns right now. Absolutely, I agree. And these sentiment surveys are really snapshots in time. I picked up another one from Dragon Trail International, which surveyed Chinese travelers. This was published last week. And this is quite interesting because one element I think is very, very different to the pandemic. And the other element is, is, is basically the same. So one of the questions was asked, at which stage of outbound tourism recovery would you be most likely to travel overseas? And 60% of those Chinese travelers that were surveyed said that they will travel again when international travel has resumed safely for a few months. So they're not going to be rushing back through the airport gates. So I guess that is a, a slight change. Um, but when they were questioned about what their preferred destinations were in future, number one was Japan, number two was Thailand, number three was Australia, four was France, and five was South Korea. That's almost a mirror image of what it was like before the pandemic. So Chinese travelers are still looking at the same destinations. You know, there aren't any more destinations than there were before. You know, countries are still the same. It's just the way we perceive and travel to them might change. A year or two ago, we started to see a lot of talk about would consumers really only want to travel to countries that have handled the pandemic well and, you know, were trusted destinations. Well, that has disappeared really because most countries throughout the world um, have been hit pretty hard by, by COVID-19. So it now just falls back to the countries you actually want to travel to. And I thought that was quite interesting because it really just does demonstrate that as much marketing as a lot of destinations do, Chinese travelers have quite strong perceptions about the countries they want to go to. And that doesn't seem to be changing. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's, that's, I was just about to say that as well. You know, when, when I was uh, doing a survey for a tourism board about perceptions, and this was at the end of 2020, about um, certain countries within Europe, yeah, a lot of people were saying, oh, I don't really want to go to Italy <laughs> or I don't really want to go to the UK because um, these were all countries that had really huge surges, of course, by 
by 2022 standards and 2021 standards that weren't huge at the time. But, you know, in, in 2020, it felt like a lot, right? And now, you know, would you go to Italy? Yeah, sure. I want I want pizza. I want pasta. I want to go to the Colosseum. You, you don't even remember that that was one of the first countries that was really hit hard uh, by the pandemic. So that, that, that is super interesting to see how that's going to play out. Yeah, absolutely. And a huge, huge challenge for travel marketers, I think, working out what how shift, shifting consumer perceptions are going to shake down in the immediate months when travel does come back at, at scale. And then over the coming months and years after that, they're, they're going to earn their money for sure. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the first part of our new two years of travel disruption series we hope you enjoyed the podcast and as always don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or we missed out you can drop us a message on our linkedin page at the southeast asia travel show yep meanwhile you can catch up with the southeast asia travel show's full back catalog on our website www.theseasiatravelshow.com and of course you can listen to every episode including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And please remember, if you do tune in to us via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give us a quick rating and a review, as that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week with a special guest for part two of the Two Years of Travel Disruption series. We look forward to talking to you then. 